This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, welcome to the future of finance, the Motive Labs podcast, where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. Welcome back. You're joined by me, Sam, today, and I have with me Paul Busby, the former CEO of Enzo Financial, part of the CME Group. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm looking forward to the conversation today, and uh, you know, hopefully we can put some good scope to some conversation here. We're in uh, New York. Our listeners will probably be able to hear where we are because you've got that perpetual siren in the background, hopefully not corona-related, but just the normal buzz of the city. Paul, let's start with a little bit about your career. You've had a pretty very career started more traditional a banker's trust you've moved through a number of senior leadership positions in large investment banks and then more recently moved into the financial technology sphere can you tell us a little bit about your background sure so look yeah it's definitely varied so obviously you can tell from england originally but left in 1996 to move to asia when i was with bankers trust started off in an operational role actually within bankers trust and then moved on to you know the securities finance and securities lending trading desk in London, moved to Hong Kong, which I thought was going to be for a six-month stint away from England. But here I am, you know, multiple years later in New York. But effectively, spent two years in Hong Kong, a year in Singapore, four years in Japan. In more broadly, during that time, it was effectively, I think, 18 years in total I was with Bankers Trust and Deutsche Bank. In Asia, you know, effectively managing all the securities lending, Delta One, prime brokerage business, and co-managing that business for the region before moving to the US in 2001. You've traveled more in your career than I think I've traveled ever. Let's talk about the move from traditional financial services to the world of fintech. 2008 was the big catalyst for the financial technology industry, and I think it really shone the light on the opportunity for people who were interested in finance to do something perhaps a little more pioneering and less traditional. What was the moment of inflection for you? Yeah, so look, I'd always had a view on market structure and the fragmentation across the market. And like you could argue within banks, there was always this closed internal self-build technology kind of culture. I should have mentioned earlier that you know when I left Deutsche Bank in 2011, then I went to HSBC for four and a half years and helping them build out their prime finance and prime brokerage business in the US. Before I went to HSBC, I nearly went to a fintech firm. I didn't choose to go at that point in time and kicked myself afterwards that I should have gone. But that kind of entrepreneurial spirit was within me all along. And I ended up being a customer of what was Enzo Financial. And Enzo, you know, really kind of caught my attention because they had become a disruptor in the hedge fund and prime brokerage space. But you could argue they were a disruptor, but really they were adding a lot of operational efficiency and transparency to what was a very opaque market. And I had an opportunity to join the founders in that journey, which was really exciting for me. Can you explain a little bit? I hadn't come across Enzo until I was doing some research, which is interesting because I worked in a prime brokerage at one point. <laughs> it shows how much I was paying attention. Can you tell us a little bit about what Enso does and the role it plays in the infrastructure. Sure. It was a genius solution, but something was very simple. So in, in its simplest forms, you know, when you're a hedge fund, you have multiple prime brokerage relationships or multiple banking channels where you're clearing, shorting securities, getting leverage, you're holding assets in custody. Operationally, for those hedge funds, it's very difficult to understand where all that exposure is at any one point in time. They are logging onto a discrete prime broker's you know, 
web portal extraction reporting or CSVs and then cobbling it all together and aggregating that together in the background. Enzo at that point said, you know what, we'll be that middleman and aggregate all of that data. And through that also shine some transparency onto originally the securities lending market and helping other hedge funds know what other hedge funds are borrowing stock at. It was very much a closed channel market before and very, very opaque in that securities finance market. And the business scaled, you know, Congratulations to the founders. They were very young, uh, 27 or 28 years old when they set up the firm and eventually sold the firm to what was ICAP and became Next Group. Even through my journey, when I ended up taking over the firm, you know, we had approximately 100 of the largest hedge funds in the world using the platform, a trillion dollars worth of data. And some of these funds are the most sophisticated managers in the world who ordinarily back in the day would have had their own infrastructure, their own technology and their own support, but made the decision to use a third party, right? And I think that part of what we're seeing here within the financial technology space now is that migration away from self-build to kind of third party vendor kind of acceleration. And what was that process like? I mean, going through an acquisition, particularly of a, a group as renowned as Next Group, well, it was renowned as ICAP and then became Next Group. But what was that like? What did it mean in terms of the integration? What did it mean in terms of the culture? And at what point in that transition did you become the CEO? Yeah, so I joined post the liquidity event. It was a, a clear channel where the firm had been bought. The founders at the time were a crossroads. They wanted to clearly kind of pursue and migrate their kind of you know, growth strategy, but they needed some scale and support. So effectively, I joined to help support the then CEO. My objective then was really to kind of help institutionalize, mature the company, think about new commercial strategies, new products, and engage our customers more. So I really kind of ramped up through that. You know, when a company gets acquired, it's tough, right? You've got to balance the momentum of the firm, whilst also trying to think about the synergies and the integration that need to accomplish within the organization that have just acquired you. Next Group, you know, had a lot of success. They had two areas of their firm. One was a trading arm, which had uh, companies called BrokerTech and EBS sitting in it. And then the optimization channel, which is where all the technology firms sat, was effectively, you know, firms like Trioptima and Triano, and obviously Enzo was one of them, and trying to make sure that we were leveraging the synergies and thinking about how we could look at the white space for customer engagement. But it's a lot of hard work, and it takes a team to kind of make sure you can kind of make that as efficient as possible. Did you know Motive Partners has a weekly newsletter? It's called Brain Food. It comes out every Sunday morning and it's packed with all the things you need to know about financial services and technology. You can subscribe at motivepartners.com. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the industry at large. As technology collided with the financial services sector, which really kicked off in earnest in 2008, although it'd been happening forever, what are some of the biggest trends you've seen, particularly in the capital market space? So sure, look, I think the big headline here is blockchain distributed ledger. It's on everybody's thoughts here. There's some great companies that are really incubating some truly aligned product solutions, but they're going to take some time. There's some companies that, you know, I've been watching closely that have got the utility and all the participants sitting around the table and test trades have been done. I think that's really exciting, but there's still probably a five to 10 year journey in my mind on where that is going. But I think you can't stand and sort of watch this as a vendor. You've got to start to think about incubating different channels and different opportunities to apply it because it will really come to fruition. But look, most of my time has been spent on, you know, capital markets, either trading execution world or post-trade operations. 
if you think about trading, if you think about the money that's in being invested in execution engines, dark pools, you know, systematic trading strategies in the last 15 years and really very limited that has been spent on operational efficiency. And I kind of always like to use this term of operational alpha. And I think there is still a significant runway ahead for a large number of the buy side and the sell side to adopt new tools. Clearly, from a banking perspective, easier said than done. There's a lot of compliance and regulatory framework items that need to be discovered. And then obviously, unfortunately, just banks don't move very fast. But I think they're trying to move as quickly as they can with their new digital strategies. And then through the other lens, you've got the buy side. And I've traditionally been in the world of alternatives and hedge funds. And I think they are trying to outsource as much of their workflow as possible by using third parties. But there's also a level of inertia here. You know, they've clearly, there's a capital expenditure of having to pay for some of these solutions. You know, sometimes a lot of these processes can still be done on Excel. You know, I would argue within my own Enzo lens that Excel was our biggest competitor. Right. And it's kind of bizarre to still think about it today in that way. But really, you know, Excel is still a kind of a market leader. And I think there's obviously some strong underswell of different solutions being brought to the market. Yeah. I mean, I can remember back in the uh, investment bank when I was there, we, we used Excel for pretty much everything, including a number of uh, different pieces of automation as well. It's, it seems so backwards. You talked about distributed ledger technology and I guess the utilization of the industry. I agree with you. There's still a long way to go in terms of post trade settlement utilities. And we've seen a number of different attempts over the years. A lot of them, I think, approached it from the wrong side. They try to build the utility and then onboard the banks rather than doing it with one bank, trying to make the economics work and then adding new banks to the system. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have the utilities that have tried to onboard multiple banks at the same time. And then you argue whose stack do you use and whose infrastructure and so on. It's really, really complicated. Do you really think people are going to be able to crack it? The answer is yes. And going back to your examples, I don't think there is a right or wrong solution here. I think the right product will win. I think having a infrastructure and a platform that is flexible to move in different directions, I think is super important. And I think that the market adoption is just going to pick up, you know, some of the utility platforms out there probably don't move as quickly and as nimbly as they should do. And this is why I'm focused on, you know, if I think about, you know, progressive fintech firms, they're the ones that are going to succeed. They can pivot and move around the marketplace very, very quickly, but need to be very laser focused on the product that they're going to build solutions for. I've also got strong views on subject matter expert-led technology firms versus technology-led fintech firms, if you, you understand what I mean. And I think there's a balance between the two. For the firms that I've seen that have been super successful, I've had people who have lived and breathed that specific industry for a long time and balanced the right level of technology DNA. And then in, in some respect, you could argue that I think some broader general technology-led platforms with limited subject matter experts don't necessarily have the right level of market connectivity. They may not have the right client relationships. And at the end of the day, this is about a commercial strategy to pick up adoption, and that needs to be a paramount point here. Again, I completely subscribe to that. I think to find that operational alpha, as you were talking about, requires having the right technology capabilities, right operational and entrepreneurial skill sets all, all in the room together. Not an easy combination to find. And while we're speaking about skills and experience and applying that to new models, I always like to ask a question about talent and leadership. Yeah, every business is a people business and they're topics that our firm are very near and dear to us. What are some of the best lessons that you've learned in talent management and leadership throughout your career? 
It comes in two parts in some respect, because I would say that, you know, the culture and values that live within a very large banking organization is very different to the life I led through my time in financial technology, all with their pros and cons. But I would say that where I flourished and where I thoroughly enjoyed obviously was my life in financial technology, where you can really define values and culture and it, it starts at the top in the management team and the executive team that set the tone. I've always had this view and even from my time in banking that everybody has a seat around the table from the youngest analyst through to the highest exec and everybody has a viewpoint and that viewpoint needs to be understood and listened to as long as it's constructive and it's thoughtful. But that to me is really powerful. One of the things that we would do at Enzo is we would have a weekly stand-up, which you know, you know, you could argue you need your you know formal quarterly town halls where you talk more about you know success of the company and the revenues and client growth. But what I found within our weekly stand-up was the entire firm sitting around a table or on a conference call. And it was free form, 15, 20 minutes. We would talk about any recent engineering success we've had in our tech stack through, you know, client acquisitions, HR stuff, but it was free form and it gave everybody a platform to speak up and have a conversation. And to me, I think that really helps drive the culture and the values of the firm. And there's no perfect recipe here, but I think open door policy has generally been my way forward. And I've always generally not necessarily sat in an office. I've always had the seat on the floor and that's my own personal style. You have to manage that, obviously, but I think that's an important part from my perspective. You know, we've been talking about technology today in an evolving world where the working world is evolving as well, from co-working to remote working to gig economy and just generally a different way of approaching your professional career. How do you think big institutions like banks are going to keep up with that? Look, I think it's going to be tough for banks. They're trying to adapt, you know, the concepts of the work from home type structure. It took me some time to get my head around it when I moved to Enzo. You know, there was a really strong underswell of people working from home. But I quickly learned that people can successfully work remotely or work in a different framework or come in later but stay late and adapt their day versus this kind of classic be on a trading desk at 7.30 in the morning and you're done by 5.36. So I think it's about the right oversight by management. I think it's about giving people an opportunity to grow and adapt their day and deliver and execute how they need to execute. But also, you know, as a leader, you've got to sniff out the people that abuse it. There's always going to be those people, but I think that's just generally not the majority. That's always something that's going to be out there. I always like to ask a question about how people live their lives. I mean, professionally, not socially. <laughs> and this feeds on quite nicely from what you were just saying. You're a busy man. How have you learned to adapt to the daily pressures to get the most out of your day? I think particularly in the technology-infused world we live in, you know, your phone becomes an anxiety-provoking hole in your pocket. And it's very hard often to focus on the right things. How do you get the most out of your days? So look, I think the headline here is be agile, right? I think information comes at you from every direction now in some digital format. could be as simple as an email or a phone call, even just what's going across Twitter or a newswire here. So I think the ability to be agile, but you have to embrace it. You know, I'm I'm working all kinds of awkward hours at this point and have done for the last few years because I know there's things I just need to get done. And it could be Saturday, Sunday, or it could be Tuesday at 10 o'clock at night. But I think the ability to be agile especially in this you know, arena within financial technology, I think it's super important. But you also need to know when to switch off, right? And for me, young family, family comes first, right? So I think adapting your lifestyle around things like that is really important. But 
I think gone are the days of this kind of traditional nine to five type environment. And I think that's just going to eke itself out over time. Yeah, that work-life integration, I think, is going to be a, a, a significant trend that we see and hopefully gives people more balance rather than less balance. I wouldn't normally ask this one, but given that you come from a, a securities background, what's the best investment you never made? From a securities investment? Well, there's a couple of things here, but they're all allied to the credit crisis in some respect. There were lows in some securities that you know were just no-brainers when you look back in hindsight now. And if you look at the world of corona today, the airline stocks are getting completely crushed, you know, and the travel industry is getting crushed. There's going to be some amazing opportunities on the upside to buy there. The other flip side of, you know, where I wish I'd made some investments in the past, again, aligned to the credit crisis. I think, you know, the housing market, different points post the credit crunch, amazing opportunities to make some potentially generational wealth for yourself if you've made some right real estate investments. But yeah, there's, there's always a missed trade somewhere that we wish we did. Hindsight's a great thing. Yeah, sure is. And then finally, who have some of your business role models been? I think you know, looking up to people, emulating, taking guidance is one of life's great privileges. And equally, I'm sure you now do that for others as a mentor. Who have been some of the special role models in your life? There were definitely clearly some people in my banking career that you know, I'd worked for directly. And they were open, candid people. They were the people that would, you know, if you wanted to go in their office and they wanted to brainstorm with you and they, they got their whiteboard out and stayed back at the end of the day to kind of help you think through a problem, super important. And they're, they're the types of people that I really I admire. And I think from anybody seeking their career going forward, seek those people out, those leaders that can give you that piece of time and it may not be long but you know really embrace that opportunity with you take it on the other hand they're not necessarily within the industry I've always had a lot of admiration for entrepreneurs who are breaking the norm and you know the, the classic example of somebody like Richard Branson who put everything on the line on numerous occasions and had the character and the charisma to kind of take his losses but then find some amazing gains are people that really sort of stand out to me as kind of people that I admire and obviously want to kind of strive to be at some point in my life there's no reward without risk Paul thank you so much it's been great seeing you here in New York I've got to run quite literally to the airport and try and get back home before we get on global lockdown it's been a real pleasure thank you and I look forward to seeing you soon thanks Sam Uh, had fun this has been great and uh, looking forward to hopefully doing this again sometime soon thank you for your time and insights and thank you very much for tuning in I'm Sam see you next time The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners' investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.